This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and develop you into the person God has made you to be. I'd like to read some verses of Scripture. It's found in Psalm 118, commencing to read from verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can men do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desires on those that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The psalmist in Psalm 118 is light of step, light of heart, full of gladness and joy. For him, it is experiencing a great experience. What has brought about this situation is simply this. He has proven that God is faithful to his word. He wrote, did he not, in Psalm 50 and verse 15, when God instructed him and he says, I call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. In verse 5, the psalmist declares that he has called upon God in his distress and that God has heard him, God has answered his need, and God has set him in a broad place, in a place of peace, of calm, of relaxation, free from the pressures of the stress and distress that he was feeling. The psalmist in Psalm 118 It presents to us a psalm of testimony. The psalmist is speaking from experience. His relationship with God is real. It's not a myth. It's not some airy-fairy story that has been told. But for the psalmist, God is real. His relationship with God is real. He speaks of being on the Lord's side. He speaks of being free from the fear of man. He says, better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. He encourages himself. He encourages us to praise the Lord. He says, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. For the psalmist, he had a personal relationship with God. It wasn't a case of God's away up there and he was down here. Yes, God was in the heavens, but God was nigh unto him every moment of every day. As we read of the psalmist, he wasn't perfect. He had his faults. He had his failings. But the one thing we note about him was his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was real. It was personal. He describes his relationship with God as in Psalm 18, verse 24, there is a friend. Who is that friend? It's God. 
And what does he say about him? That he sticketh closer than a brother. We know the saying, do we not? Blood is thicker than water. We know that a relationship between two brothers is something very special. We have the notable twins at the back, Sam and David. There's something special about their relationship as brothers. As we would say today, they're as thick as thieves. There's nothing they wouldn't do for each other, to help each other, to take care of each other. And yet the psalmist, when he makes this statement, I believe he's fully aware of the personal relationship between brothers. And he says, that's special. That's genuine. That's sincere. But I want to tell you that there's one who is even closer than a personal brother. And and for the psalmist, it was God Almighty. David had such a relationship with God that it is one I'm sure each and every one of us would desire to have. And God had a relationship with David. For we read in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, what God says in regards to David. He said he was a man after his own heart. But not only had the psalmist that wonderful relationship, but he had that wonderful joy of being found in God's house. For what does he say in Psalm 122? I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. To be found in God's house was not a chore. It was not a duty. It was not something that he was obliged to do. It was something that filled him with joy and gladness. It's something that he looked forward to for every occasion. Such was his relationship with his God. And yet, as we examine the relationship of David with his God, we have to admit, do we not, that in this present day and situation in which we find ourselves, that such a relationship is lost in many respects. The older generation, I feel, had a greater understanding of that personal relationship that David had because of their circumstance, because of the situations in which they found themselves. They realized that they could not sort their problems out. They could not meet their needs. As I spoke to such over the years, they reminded me of the situations where they depended on God to put food on the table, where they depended on God to provide the finance, to pay the rent, to pay the coal man. And this was their experience. This was real. This was every day. There was a limitation in what they had but they had a limitless God who was able and willing when they asked to meet their wonderful need. And because of that relationship, it traveled into the house of God. Because of that closeness, because of that personal uh, faith in God, God worked, God operated as he desired to. But with the progress of time, we find ourselves we're not as dependent upon God as we once were. Prosperity has come. We have money in our pockets. We have money in the bank. We have food in the larder. And we have all our necessities. And with that, I feel we lose out greatly in our dependency upon God. And yet I believe God requires that we have that renewed fellowship and closeness with him, as did David, as did the patriarchs in Scripture, as did the apostles. For it is only when we're in that relationship with God 
that we really know God, we really experience God as he desires we should experience him. And so this evening, my subject is God. And I want to view God under three questions and ask you, what is your God? Who is your God? And where is your God? What is your God? From the beginning of time, man has had that desire to seek out and to worship something. He called it God. He did not know who God was. He did not know where God was. But in his ignorance and his desire to satisfy that which was within, he started to worship. He worshipped trees. He worshipped animals. He worshipped the stars. He worshipped the moon, the sun. And he was content with that. And then as things progressed, he began to, to try and discover, to try and understand what God would look like. And so he called upon his creative skills. And he formed images in wood, in stone. And as man progressed, even in precious metals, such as silver and gold. And for him, his images were his all. This was his God. He came before it. He bowed down before it. He worshipped it. He brought his sacrifices onto it. But when things went wrong, when difficulties arose, he found to his uh, cost, shall I say, that his God, no matter how elaborate it may look, no matter how beautiful it may look in his eyes, he found that it could not help them. It could not solve his problems. It could not answer his prayers. It could not make life any better. The psalmist writing in Psalm 115, uh, there speaks of their idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses have they, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is every one who trusteth in them. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. We get an insight into their, shall I say, their uselessness, in Second, in First Chronicles, rather, the Philistines are facing King David in battle. They have brought their gods, their idols, onto the battlefield. But as the battle goes forth, King David wins. The Philistines flee. The result, they leave their gods behind them in the battlefield. And David gives orders that they're to be rounded up and burned. And that's what happened. But not only did the Philistines worship uh, idols, but we read also in 2 Kings 17, how be it every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. It was common practice. It was not something out of the ordinary, but rather for many it was the normal. Even Paul came across it 
as Pastor referred to it this morning, when he was found in Athens on Mars Hill. What does he say? For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Man and his images, his idols, for some things they satisfied But when troubles and trials and tribulations came, those who worshipped them, those who depended upon them, found that they were of no benefit to them at all. In this modern age, many will say, well, we've progressed. We don't bow down to such things. We don't worship such, such idols. There are those who still do. But for many, they no longer follow that practice. And yet, although they may not bow down to graven images, nevertheless, they are bowing down to other gods. For today, some of the gods that people are bowing down to, who are giving their attention to, is ambition, wealth, materialism, success. While there's nothing wrong with ambition, why there's nothing wrong with being successful, why there's nothing wrong with acquiring possessions, where the problem is when the pursuit of such isolates you from your relationship with an almighty God. For Jesus, if he has given us talents, he expects us to use them. Not to be like the servant that we read of in the New Testament who was given one talent and he went and hid it in the ground. But if God has given us talents, he expects us to use them for our benefit, for the benefit of our fellow man, but most of all, for the benefit of God himself. Jesus spoke of that situation, did he not, in Luke chapter 12, of the rich farmer. He said... I will pull down my barns and build greater. Well, that was the right decision. That was common sense. That was being an astute businessman. But then he goes on to say, you know, soul, take thy ease. I have much laid up. Eat, drink, and be merry. It wasn't that God found fault with his ability as a farmer, his ability as a businessman, but God found fault with the fact that he left out the one who had made him wealthy, the one who had blessed him, the one who had given him the mighty harvest that he spoke about. And there are those, surely, who are depending upon such. Paul, writing in Philippians 3, he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. In that statement, he sums it up. He's speaking of those whose gods are their possessions, their ambitions, their wealth, and they're putting all their effort into achieving their goal. They're putting all their effort in acquiring such wealth and have no thought of God or the things of God. And like those who bow down to graven images, when it comes to the challenge, when it comes to the difficulties, when it comes to the problems in life, they'll find that their wealth, their substance, those things that they have pinned their hopes on are as much use to them as the graven images are to the ones who bow down to them. For we are reminded 
No matter how long we live, there will be trials, there will be challenges, there will be difficulties. The psalmist writing in Psalm 90 says, The days of your years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. They are found wanting indeed. We are reminded of the words of God to Moses as he records them in Deuteronomy. God is warning Moses of the children of Israel, of their attitudes and of their thinking. And he says, speaking of them, speaking of the children of Israel, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We have been brought from the house of bondage. We have been liberated. We have been captive in Egypt, but the snare has been broken. We have been set free. Our feet have been lifted from out of the miry clay. We have been placed upon the rock, the rock Christ Jesus. Our sins, which were many, have been blotted out, never to be remembered against us anymore. And when the Heavenly Father looks upon us, He sees not what we used to be, but He sees Jesus. But then God goes on to say, and thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. How many have forgotten what God has done for them? And how many are saying, I have. I. For the rich farmer, it was a problem with the I. I will. I have. I will do. You know, we have what we have by the grace and goodness of God. And we're reminded in his word regarding God, for God says, for the Lord says, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. What is your God tonight? What are you pinning your hopes on? It's a question that needs to be answered. Only you can answer it. Not only what is your God, but who is your God? Many people have different interpretations as to who God is. But I want to challenge you this evening. Who is your God? My God is the great creator. We are told in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I thank God this evening that this old earth was created. It's not the result of a big bang. It's not the result of atoms colliding at a tremendous speed, but it was created by the great creator. Today in society, and particularly in the schools, they're presenting this theory, that the Big Bang theory. They're presenting this theory of evolution, but we believe in a living God, a creator who spoke this universe into being. But not only did he create the world, and all that is in it, but he created you and I in his own image. For we are reminded, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him, male and female, created he them. Aren't you glad you're not descended from a monkey tonight? We are made in the image of an almighty living God. 
Jesus, when he spoke on earth, he made the reference that he who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus was the image of God. And God says, I change not. This is the God we trust in this evening. You know, some may look at us and say, we're not very attractive looking, but I rejoice in the fact I'm made in the image of my God. Praise his wonderful name. He not only is the great creator, but he's a living God who can do for us what idols cannot. The psalmist in Psalm 115 paints a picture of an image with eyes, ears, mouth, nose, hands, and feet. But it's only an image. There's no life in it. Even when God created Adam in the garden, what does it say? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And our God is a living God. He had to be alive to breathe life into Adam. And he is alive today. He is a mouth wherewith he speaks and answers us. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob. He spoke to the prophets. As we read through God's word, we're constantly reminded of God speaking to men. But he also spoke to the ordinary individual. He spoke to young Samuel. As we read of in 1 Samuel chapter 3, tending, helping Eli in the temple. He called out to him. Samuel went to Eli, thought Eli was calling. It happened three times. And then Eli realized it was God who was speaking. And he told Samuel how to answer. And Samuel answered, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And God spoke. And God communicated with him. I praise God that he doesn't just speak to those who are in certain positions, but he speaks to all mankind. He even spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus, the greatest rogue at that particular time as far as the Christian church was concerned. His name brought fear into the hearts of the Christian. And yet on the road to Damascus, he spoke unto him. The people that were with him heard the sound but did not understand what was being said. But he spoke to Saul. Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Well, does the hymnist, taking pen in hand, sum up his experience regarding God when he wrote, He speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds cease their singing. A statement from experience. How many of us can identify with that, that God has come in certain circumstances and situations, not necessarily always when we are in difficulties, but he comes and that sweet, small, still voice speaks. It refreshes, it calms, it directs, it guides, it lifts us up. But God not only has a mouth wherewith he speaks, he has eyes that see. We're reminded in Genesis chapter 16 of the situation of Hagar. Things were difficult at home. She had fallen out with Sarah, her mistress, and she'd run away. She found herself in the wilderness, alone, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to do. And God meets with her, and God instructs her to return to her mistress. But what was the testimony of Hagar? She said, Thy God seest me. Job, in similar thought and trend, says in Job 31, 
Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? Job was stating clearly, God sees everything about me. There's not a step I take. There's not a corner I go round. There's not a thing I do that he does not see what I do. Jesus himself speaking regarding his heavenly father. And Luke has recorded his words. Are not five sparrows, sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. He's clearly saying, even a little sparrow that falls to the ground, God sees. And then he goes on to say, but even the very hair of our heads are all numbered. Fear not therefore, for ye are more valuable than many sparrows. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, tells us also that God sees in secret. There is nothing hid from him. No matter where we are, it doesn't matter how thick the walls may be, how strong the door may be, how high the building may be, God sees. We might hide things from man, but God seeth all things. But also God is watching over his investment, for he has invested much in us when he sent a son to die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. Isaiah takes up the theme in Isaiah chapter 6, and he gives an insight. The meeting has taken place in heaven. The matter has been discussed. God has declared what is required for the redemption of mankind. And he asked the question. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. God sent his son to this earth. The most precious, most dearest thing he possessed to redeem you and I. And when he looks upon us, He's keeping an eye on his investment. He has invested an awful lot in you and I this evening. God sees. He has ears that hear. The psalmist takes up the theme. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication? It wasn't just once that he had cried unto the Lord and the Lord had answered him. But on many occasions, in many experiences, he had proved time and time and time again that God not only heard, but God didn't get tired of his calling upon him. Do you know, as parents, we've all had the experience, kids, you know, Daddy, I want this. And we say, no. And they come back, and they come back, and they come back, and they come back. You know, when they try and worry you down, and you either get angry, or else you give in. But God doesn't get like that. No matter how many times we come, no matter how many times we call, no matter how times we ask, this is the God we serve this evening. John, as recorded for us in chapter 11, the scene outside the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus has given instruction for them to take away the stone. And then he says, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus 
bearing witness that God hears. His ear is tuned even to hear the faintest of whispers. But also, God has a heart, a heart that is moved with compassion. For Mark records for us regarding Jesus that when he came out, he saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You may say, but we're talking about Jesus. But listen what Jesus says in John 14. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Again in John 10, I and my Father are one. As Jesus is, so is the Heavenly Father. He is a heart that is moved with compassion towards each and every one of us. And he has hands and arms, healing hands. Moses writing in Deuteronomy 33 says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Have we ever experienced the everlasting arms of God round and about us? Those arms that hold us, those arms that comfort us, those arms that support us, and in many cases, those arms that carry us. When we're not able to move any further, when we're not able to do for ourselves, God comes and he puts those arms of love round about us, and he embraces us. But also he puts forth his healing hands, for we read that Jesus stretched forth his hand, and he touched him, saying, if, I, saying, I will be thy clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. Jesus again speaking in John said, Do you not know, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Well, can we say, like father, like son, but he also has feet. We are reminded in Genesis 3, he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. We are reminded in Luke 24 of the two disciples of their experience on their way to Emmaus. What did they say? Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The hymnist, again, taking pen in hand, surely is speaking of his own experience, that he walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. Our God, my God, is a living God. But the th third question is simply this, where is your God? Pardon me. Where is your God? Luke, writing in Acts chapter 2, says that he, Jesus, is at the right hand of God in heaven. Again, writing in Acts 7, Luke gives us the vision that Stephen had when he was been stoned to death. What did he say? He says he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we have the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 20, resurrection morning he's found in the garden standing before him is Mary and what does he say to Mary I ascend unto my father and your father and my God and your God God is in heaven but he's present with us can we grasp that reality we say that's physically impossible but with God it's not 
For John, writing in 1 John chapter 4, reminds us that God abides in us. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, takes up the theme when he says, Do you not know that ye are temples of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And then the writer in Hebrews gives us that wonderful assurance, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has a wonderful plan. His plan from the beginning, even at the creation in the Garden of Eden, was fellowship with man. God's desire, as we read through the Scriptures, constantly presents His desire to have fellowship with man. The question for us is, do we have a desire to have fellowship with Him? The writer in Second Chronicles 7 says, speaking as God speaking, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their lands. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves. What's he saying? Are we giving God his place? I remember as a youth leader many, many years ago, and our motto was God first. But for many people today, I feel that is not the motto. God might be second or third, or he might be even further down the line. But God has said, you know, if we humble ourselves, if we give God his rightful place, then the plans that he has for us, he will bring to pass. You know, the scripture tells us he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. And I've said it before, and there's times my mind goes wild. And I sit and I think about the things that I'd like God to do. And then sometimes I say, you'll catch yourself on. (laughs) But you know, God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. No matter how outlandish we may think, yet God says, I can do greater than that. And he has a desire to fulfill his plans and purposes, not only in our lives as individuals, not only in the life of this fellowship, but in the life of this land. And surely if this land needs healing, it needs it tonight. You know, we thank God for the politicians. They have a difficult job. But, you know, they talk about, we'll set up committees here and we'll have discussions and we'll try and sort things out. What this land needs is Jesus tonight. And often we have said it and we've had it in conversation. We say, I wish God would hurry up and do what he's going to do. And, you know, I feel very much that the Lord is saying to us, saying to the church, I wish the church would hurry up and get in the right position that I want them to be in so that I can do what I want to do. You know, as I thought of this message, the Lord directed me to Mark chapter 6. And there we have Jesus visiting the town of Nazareth. He had grew up in this town. He had grew up as a boy into manhood. He worked in the carpenter shop. But this time he was returning as the Son of God with all the resources of heaven at his disposal. What healings could not have taken place? 
what lives could not have been changed, what circumstances could not have been sorted out, what transformation could have taken place in that town of Nazareth on that day. I don't know what he had planned to do that day. But what does it say? And he could there do no mighty works, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. What a wonderful day of visitation was that for the town of Nazareth. And yet, even the Son of God couldn't do what he wanted to do, what he had planned to do because of man. It's a solemn thought to realize that we, the church of God, you know, a pastor spoke this morning, and God says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I praise God for that. But so often I feel God is also coping with the resistance that is found among his people. They're not where they should be. They're not prepared to do what God asks of them. You know, during the week, our little grandson was over visiting. He was out playing at the back and he was busy playing away and his mother said something to him. And without looking up, without stopping what he's doing, he just says, I'm too busy. And it just hit home to me. How many times is God hearing that from his people? God's asking us to do something, to get involved in something, to make more room, to make more time for him. And we're saying, well, I'm too busy. You know, we need to get back to that relationship like that that the psalmist had with God, a relationship that is intimate, a relationship where God is first in our lives, where God is held with reverence and respect. And you know, when we get there, I believe we'll be thrilled, we'll be delighted to experience and to see what God has planned for us as individuals for this fellowship, for this land. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message. For more teaching resources, visit www.mpc.org.uk.